welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Are you kidding? This is unbelievable! Touchdown Bombers! Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. We have a very special guest on today's episode. Former All-Pro lineman who played for the University of Miami Hurricanes, the Pittsburgh Steelers, for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's done so many incredible things throughout his football career and has many great stories to tell. Today's guest is Leon Searcy. Leon, thank you so much for being on today's episode. It is a great honor and privilege to have you on Huddle Up. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Leon, reading through your book, it was absolutely fantastic. Your autobiography, Fourth Down and Damn, Alignment's Tale is now out. It's available on Amazon in America, Canada, international shipping. This was such a great book to read. I really enjoyed diving into more into your story, especially particularly after I'd known about the different places you've played, having seen the famous now ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Catholics versus Convicts, highlighting the famous rivalry game between the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and the Miami Hurricanes. I want to start back at the beginning, though. You're from Orlando, Florida, and in your childhood, there was a specific instance in the book that talks about your motivation for doing well in football. You're playing when you're about 10 years old and your coach had been disrespectful in not, not making you feel confident that you could play on the team. And your mom, she had something to say otherwise to that. And from there, things changed dramatically. What went through your mind during that moment and take us a little bit through what you were thinking through the interaction and how your perspective on playing football changed. Well, you know, I, I was 10 years old. Uh, I was actually born in Washington, D.C., where, where it happened. Uh, you know, back in those days, you know, organized, fo- organized football actually cost money. So your parents had to actually save up money uh, for you to play football. And I had always been, a, you know, I had always played street ball, tackle football, but I never played organized football. So me and a couple of my friends actually walked about a couple of miles to a, to a field where they were having organized football. We had the money to pay for the gear and everything like that. So we initially, when we first got to the field, we already knew when we walked on the field, we felt like outcasts, so to say, because the, 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 the uh, organized football was in a prominent area, you know, where kids have money. You know, they had cleats, they had jerseys and all that kind of stuff. And we were street kids, basically. And uh, we came in there with our, you know, tennis shoes and our – and our shorts and everything. So we felt like outcasts from the first place. And then when we got there, um, you know, uh, the kids in, you know, in those days and maybe in these days can be kind of uh, stuck up and you'd be hard on other kids that they feel that are less fortunate than them. And, um, and the kids kind of razzed on us because, you know, we were inner city kids and we basically walked to the prominent area where the kids had could afford to play football. Uh, but we had the money and we got in line and uh, the kids were picking on us. Uh, they knew that we weren't from around the area. And, um, you know, we were confident that we could do whatever they could do. Uh, but it was just the the the, the stigma of knowing that uh, we were street kids and they were suburban kids that uh, um, that made us feel uncomfortable. And uh, the kids picked on me. I was a little chubby kid at the time, but I was very athletic. And I went through the drills and uh, I did well. And I actually collapsed on the ground after I had finished running the drills. And the kids had respect for me because I had, run the drill so well and one of the coaches came up to me and grabbed me up and basically told me that I, I was too big or too fat to be on this field and he sent me home and you know I cried I was 10 years old I was offended everybody was laughing at me on my way and on my parent my mom 
you know, saw me walk into the house and asked me how football practice was. And I, I didn't say anything. I went to my room. I was upset. And she went upstairs. She asked me uh, what happened. And I told her. I was honest with her. What one of the coaches said to me you know, while, I was, while I was practicing. And my mama, uh, you know, she turned into like uh, a lioness protecting her club, cub. Uh, she told me she got me in the car. She drove me to the place and she told me that I better point out the guy who said what he said to me. And I was a little nervous and she took me by the hand on the field and I pointed out to the coach that told me to get off his field. And my mom went up to his face and said, listen, are you the coach that said that my son couldn't play football for you? He says, hey, yes, ma'am, I did. She said, I want you to remember this name. She said, his name is Leon Searcy. And she said, uh, uh, she said, you're going to be the coach. What well, she said, you're going to be the dumbass who didn't coach him when he goes to the next level, when he plays in the NFL. And my mom planted that seed to me real early. My mom always believed in me. She always told me that anything you put your mind to, you can accomplish. So she planted that seed in me real early that, uh, that I could, I could be anything I wanted. And I, I, I appreciated her for that. It's such an incredible story with how a moment of dejection could really plant a seed of inspiration that ended up being harvested when you became an NFL player. And it's just crazy to think of how moments like those where people may feel upset or that they don't belong can actually be the turning point. And it really seemed that that was, was critical in your life to propel you to have that motivation to prove your mom right, that you would be able to play at that next level. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, my mom was an educator. You know, my mom was a, a school teacher, a counselor, and a principal for over 45 years. And, you know, I only played one year of high school football. My mom was a stickler on education. And my mom knew in middle school that I would skate by and barely get by. You know, I was a, I was a C-plus student. But my mom knew that in high school that I was going to need – I needed to apply myself a little bit more than I was when I was in middle school. So she told me that I couldn't play sports until I had a 3.0. So you can only imagine me being one of the biggest kids in high school not being able to play for sports. And I, I ended up um, going into my junior year. Well, the, 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 the end of my junior year, start of my uh, senior season, uh, I went out for football. And um, I was nervous about it. I had trained. I, I had trained for like months just to get myself prepared for spring football. And I can remember it to this day. And I even elaborated on the book. It was the last, it was seventh period. It was the first day of football practice. And I had done all the training that I felt necessary to get myself prepared for football. But I remember when that school bell rang for seventh period, I walked out of the school and I looked to my right and I saw all the kids walking towards the football play field to play football. And I was still intimidated by the fact that I had never played organized football before. And right in front of me, right in front of me was my school bus to go home. And I remember actually stepping on my school bus, getting on the school bus, them closing the door and then the school bus driver taking off. And something in my spirit told me to get off the bus. So I told the school bus driver to stop the bus so I could get off and go out and, 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 and um, try out for football. And I, and I think to this day, if I, if I had never gotten off that school bus, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you right now. Because, you know, if you get on the school bus one day, it's easy to get on the next day and the next day and the next day. But I took the initiative to get off that school bus, even though I was frightened, even though I was fearful. I knew that it was the right thing to go and go out there for football practice. So, uh, I mean, the rest is history. I thank myself to this day. To this day, I thank 16-year-old Leon that he got off that school bus because I probably wouldn't be where I am right now today if I, if I had stayed on that school bus. You touched upon something that I think is very important, and that's in that part of the story, is that 
You were fearful. So you were fearful and you were scared about what may happen if you didn't achieve what you were looking to achieve. And you got off that school bus despite being scared and you were able to go try. And I think that carries a bit of a theme with a person that is on their journey to becoming a professional athlete, especially a world-class one such as an NFL player. And that that carries into the next part of the story I want to touch upon was getting to the University of Miami. Now, the U is one of the most famous football programs in all of America, in the NCAA. And you were going to play under, again, one of the great college head coaches and became a Hall of Fame head coach in the NFL, Jimmy Johnson. What really motivated you to get to that next level in terms of playing college and why it was important for you to keep going because you had played the one year of high school football was great, but, but then why college? The only reason why I went out for football, to be quite honest with you, although I had the grades to go to college, I I knew my mom and dad had worked so hard and uh, I knew that uh, they were doing enough to, uh, you know, keep us afloat. And the last thing I wanted to do is be a burden on my parents by having them to have to pay for me to go to college. So I used, I, I, I had the opportunity to actually, it was a scout. I was actually walking in the hallways in high school and a, a scout from LSU came up to me and he thought I was another guy. And he asked me if I played football and I told him I didn't. And he told me that, you know, that if you play football, you can get a scholarship to go to college. And that's exactly, you know, when he told me that, that's when I made the decision that I was going to actually, you know, put my, prepare myself to play, you know, get myself ready for college. To, so get a scholarship uh, to, to, to play football. And, um, I didn't have any trainers. I was self-motivated. What I would do every day I would go um, before even football practice started. Every day I would purposely skip the bus, wouldn't catch the bus home so I could run uh, about three and a half miles from the school to my uh, to my home to get myself uh, in shape. I would get home. I would do my chores. I would do my homework. And then I would go to uh, my middle school and I would, I would just work on my footwork and put, and remember this now, this is without any trainers and without any friends, without any more. So I was self-motivated. I was focused and determined that I was going to get the scholarship wherever I was going to. And I ended up going to spring ball and I started off as a third string nose guard and spring ball. And by the end of spring ball, I was a starting right tackle at my high school. And, um, um, my high school coach didn't want me to get complacent. So my high school coach actually told me, after spring ball was over, that he wanted me to go to summer school. Now, back in those days, the only time you went to summer school is when you have the grades. And I had the grades. I had a 3.75 grade point average. But back in those days, you did whatever your high school coach did, told you to do. For the for the last, that whole summer, I woke up every morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I went from summer school from 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock every day. And I just trained. I ran. I worked. My high school coach trained me and worked me and got myself in some shape uh, to the point where when we started us. Uh, uh, summer camp, you know, I, I was in the best shape of my life. And um, University of Miami really didn't come about. I had two scholarship offers initially. I had Florida and and South Carolina State. You know, I thought I had done something because I had, I had them interested in me. But uh, University of Miami came about because of uh, just the tenacity of the way I played uh, in my, my senior year. Uh, it grasped their attention. And it would have been easy for me to just go to any other school and I, I probably would have started, but I knew that I went, if I went to the University of Miami, I knew that was where, where the, the great players played at. And I wanted to see if it, I could excel 
at that university. So that's why I chose Miami, because I knew that if I could play there, then I would have an opportunity to play at the next level. And with looking at all the NFL players that the Miami Hurricanes have produced, especially in around that time, you had a few teammates who gathered a lot of notoriety after the time at Miami and one for football and the other not for football. And in your rookie year, it talks about in the book, a story of your interactions with Michael Irvin when you guys got a big win. And as well as somebody who was a freshman when you were a senior in Dwayne Johnson, the rock, who was also a player that played for the hurricane. So I first want to touch on Michael Irvin and those first few years. What was that experience like playing alongside and being on the same team as somebody like him? And what were your first impressions of the whole program overall? Well, I, I remember the first time I, I, I um, came to the university of Miami. Um, it was freshman orientation and we were checking into the dorms. And uh, I remember seeing Michael Irvin. I was starstruck because, you know, Michael Irvin had, had established himself as one of the great wide receivers in college football at that particular time. And I remember seeing him walk into class one day and I told my dad, yeah, that's Michael Irvin. That's the playmaker. So I, I knew that, um, you know, Mike, you know, had this certain aura about him, this confidence about him, this cockiness about him uh, that just, just went along with being a Miami hurricane. And, um, uh, you know, he took me on his wing. You know, he was the type of guy that wanted to see you succeed and he would give you any kind of advice that, that you asked for. He was also the first guy to give me my first drink, you know, by the way, that was in the book as well. Uh, but yeah, Michael Irvin to this day is a, is a consummate uh, professional. He, he was always, a, he, was a, he was a star at the University of Miami. He was always the hardest working guy on the football field. So I respected that about him. So he taught me how to train. He taught me how to be a motivator. He taught me about confidence and working hard and everything that went along with it. Now, Dwayne Johnson, uh, the Rock, Dewey is what his nickname was. We His nickname was Dewey. We called him the University of Miami. Uh, Dewey was a hard worker. I mean, he trained hard. He was physically, he came from a family that they were that were athletes and wrestlers and everything like that. So he was already locked and loaded on how to train and how to work out and everything. Now, he just had the unfortunate task of having to be at the University of Miami at the same time where the all-time breaks were playing, which is Warren Sapp. So when Warren Sapp got there, I mean, Dwayne Johnson had absolutely no chance of playing. Uh, he was a backup for the majority of the time he was at Miami, but uh, he was still a competitor. Uh, he he, ne he never uh, griped a moan. He just gave effort each and every day that I know him as a player. And, uh, you know, I have much respect for that because he came into the University of Miami highly touted, you know, as a defensive tackle. It just so happened that Warren Sapp happened to be there that he really didn't see the field that much. But he was a consummate backup. So he did help with us win some, some championships. But uh, – it's hard to be uh, someone like Sap. I mean, Sap, someone who's who's a University of Miami all-time great and is in, in the NFL Hall of Fame. And the particular story in the book that I found super hilarious, talking about you interacting with Sap when he was saying, "No, Leon, I'm going to play tight end," and you were like, "Okay, we'll see." And <laughs> you told him he was going to play defensive end because that's where he would have succeeded, and he ended up making the switch kind of out of uh, out of his hands. The coaches made that switch for him. And and we look and see what the results are. And he had a Hall of Fame career and, and won a Super Bowl with the Buccaneers under John Gruden. And so what was it like being teammates with with Sapp? He, he must have been uh, quite the competitor to play against. Well, yeah, listen, Sapp is, uh, is, is hilarious. I, you know, I love Warren Sapp. A lot of people don't know this. And I, I reflected on it in the book. That was actually, 
I was Warren Sapp's host when he came to University of Miami, you know, because Sapp is from the Orlando area. He's from Apopka, and I was from that area as well. So I was his host and I had to entertain him at University of Miami. And I actually helped him, you know, get to University of Miami. But I remember Sapp, a lot of people don't know this, that Warren Sapp, when he came out of high school, he was a he was a number one tight end in the state of Florida. Sapp was a tight end. He was 6'3", 245 pounds, 250-pound tight end um, when he came on our visit. Now, when he came back that summer, Sap was 285. Okay. So the last time I told Sap, I remember telling Sap when he came back, I said, Sap, when's the last time the University of Miami had a 6'3, 285 pound tied in? I said, it's not going to happen, bro. I said that in a couple of years, they're going to end up moving you to defensive tackle. And Sap, he, he wasn't having that. You know, he's stubborn as they all outside, but he still had the hands, he still had the feet. And I remember doing spring drill about a couple of years later, and uh, he, I had the ropes. And Sap was going through the ropes, and I said, Sap, your big ass, they're going to move your big ass to the defensive tackle. And lo and behold, right after we finished doing that camp, you know, he was in the defensive lines uh, meeting room, and I just happened to be outside the defensive lines meeting room when they told him to go in the defensive line meeting room. And uh, he happened to be sitting in the Rock's chair. And the Rock came into the meeting room and asked Sap what he was doing in the uh, uh, defensive line meeting room. And Warren Sap turned to the Rock and told him, I'm here to take – your bleeping position and the rest was history that story just it really rings true in terms of the confidence that you see exerted by warren Sapp to this day and especially how he was in the field and unfortunate for the rock to have been up against what was supposed to what was going to be a future hall of famer in the nfl but you look at the way that the rock's career turned out and even up here in canada his talk of being cut in the cfl and having seven dollars in his pocket Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening with him going to the WWF, WWE, as they say, you know, sometimes the, the thing that you wanted the most not happening is the best thing that could have happened to you. And it's great to see that it worked out for both of them in the end. Absolutely. Great careers. Absolutely. I, I tell you this, the Rock wouldn't trade it for anything in the world right now. I mean, he's the number one superstar in the world, to be quite honest with you. He's one of the most electrifying personalities to have ever existed in in the world of entertainment and thanks to Vince McMahon and everything that they were able to do together in those first years and in the mid to late nineties, it's just crazy to think of in a way, when I was reading through the book, I almost kind of felt like it was like Forrest Gump in a book because of many of the origin stories and just you being that character that's there to witness all these beginnings for famous people, even on draft day, the young reporter from ESPN who came to do the interview with you right after you were getting drafted was a guy by the name of Stuart Scott. And mm-hmm. it's crazy to think about how many of these people you interacted with during the very, very beginnings of what became legendary careers. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, on my draft day, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, because the draft is only next one. I, you know, I get interviewed and ask me about my draft day. Yeah, uh, I remember I dra- the draft was a noon back in those days. You know, it's not like the prime time uh, um, uh, like it is now. Uh, and I, I just remember me and my dad waking up about six o'clock in the morning. My dad was taking me up to walk across the neighborhood, you know, so I wouldn't forget where I came from. And uh, we get back to the house somewhere around eight thirty, nine o'clock. And there's media media outlets all throughout the front yard and everything. And they're trying to get an interview with me to ask about the draft and stuff like that. But I wouldn't take any interviews until I got drafted. But my father knew of, of Stuart Scott because my dad worked at the airport, Orlando International Airport, and Stuart would come through there frequently. And him and my dad would talk. So my dad told me, hey, you know, Stuart's a good friend of mine. You know, make sure he gets the first interview when you get drafted. So, yeah, that was Stuart Scott. 
who actually interviewed me first once I got drafted by the Steelers in 1992. And even on that draft day as well, aside from the Stuart Scott interview, there was a lot of strong talks about you getting a contract offer to go play for the Dallas Cowboys. And, and there mm-hmm. was the, there was a gentleman from the Cowboys who showed up with your Jersey and number and everything stitched in the back. And, and then lo and behold, with the 11th pick, you were announced after getting a call from coach Bill Cower that you were going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. So talk about some of the emotions that went through your mind with the rapid switch from, I'm going to be a Dallas Cowboy. Great to, Oh, with the 11th pick, they select, he said, Ed Searcy, the commissioner at the time, even though, you know, it's Leon Searcy, but how crazy was, was that like turn of events? Well, you know, when, when I initially got the call from Coach Johnson at about 1030 or about hours before the draft, you know, I was a little bit on edge. There was a lot of anxiety that was involved with me uh, because I wasn't sure if I was going to be drafted. There was different projections of where I was going to go. You know, I was going to go high in the first round, low in the first round. I just wanted to be drafted in the first round. And I remember Coach Cow- Coach Cow- uh, Johnson calling me about 1030 in the morning. He told me that I was going to be the Cowboy. And at that particular time, the Dallas Cowboys had the 17th pick in the draft. And uh, he told me I was going to be a cowboy. So I felt a little bit more comfortable with Jimmy Johnson because he had recruited me. You know, he was with the Cowboys. And Jimmy had uh, he had an agenda that he wanted his guys from Miami that he recruited. Uh, he knew the, the guys that worked hard to put a lot of effort into their practice and what they did. So that was one of the reasons why Jimmy was coming after me. Uh, but, um, you know, Bill Coward called me, you know, about the eighth pick in the draft. Uh, and, you know, the eighth pick in the draft, I get the call from the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it's Bill Cower. And Bill Cower says, hey, Leon, we have the 11th pick in the draft, and, um, you know, you're going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. So I stayed on the phone with him until I got drafted. So then when we get to the 11th pick and they mentioned my name, well, actually, they didn't mention my name. They said Ed Searcy, but I knew exactly who they were talking about. Um, I, You know, I was elated. You know, I was excited. My family was jumping around, screaming, hugging, crying, all that kind of stuff that was going on. And I remember the Dallas Cowboy representative in the back had tore up, tore up the contract that him and my uh, agent were negotiating. And before he left, you know, he had my jersey, Cowboy jersey with 73 and Cersei on the back of it. And I asked him before he left, I said, hey, man, before you leave, let me get that jersey. I mean, you're not going to need it. And he turned to me and he said, son, he said, understand this. He said, you're a stiller now. And he said, a cowboy would never give a stiller nothing. And I was like, okay, all right. I understand the rivalry now. But that was my that was my draft day story. I, I'll never forget it. it was like, I remember it like it was yesterday. And to think about all the emotions that would go through someone's mind when being selected in the first round of the NFL draft is absolutely staggering to, to ponder. And, and even through those first years, I remember there was a line in the book you mentioned where you know, there's agents that show up and they they try to, to tell you about the amazing life of an NFL player and the money and the cars and the fame and the women and all these sorts of things. But you mentioned in the, in the sentence after that, you learned later on that they'd say just about anything to get you to come play in the NFL. So did you feel a lot of fear or anxiety for for when you were actually going to strap up for the Steelers and play 92? Or did you feel a sense of excitement? What was that like? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, and, I, you know, I mentor to a lot of young athletes that go into the next level, and sometimes they feel obligated to spend a lot of money, hang out, drink a lot, chase after women, 
you know, and um, some of those proponents are what lead to most of their downfall because uh, a, a lot of guys don't realize uh, the importance of, of saving your money and protecting your body until it's too late. Uh, and, you know, and that's the agents, that's how they attract you. You know, they attract you with the flash and dash, you know, they attract you with the money and the trips and the cars and the clothes and the jewelry and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's unfortunate that a lot of guys are proponents to that throughout their whole career and they don't realize it's all smoke and mirrors until it's too late. Uh, but I didn't feel any real anxiety about going to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I knew I would come from a story program that had prepared me well to play at the next level. Uh, the unfortunate thing about me, the reason why I didn't actually play my rookie year is because I held out all the way through training camp. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, the Steelers were notorious for not playing their play players back in the day. And they wanted to make an example out of me uh, because I held out for so long. So my rookie year in Pittsburgh, um, I didn't start not one game. I, I did mop-up duty. Uh, you know, I did scout team play. Um, so I knew that for the most part, although I might have been prepared to play, I thought, I thought that the Steelers were trying to uh, exert themselves upon me about holding out. So, you know, I dealt with it professionally. You know, I didn't go to the media. I didn't gripe. I didn't moan. I just knew that when I did have the opportunity, I would let them know why they drafted me in the first round, 11 pick overall. And when I got that opportunity, I damn sure made the most of it. You absolutely did and played during some of the craziest years of the Steelers franchise in the 90s, having been very successful, although they weren't able to capture a Super Bowl during that time. But Bill Cowher Steelers were something to behold. And especially with some of the big games that many NFL fans remember that you were there to be a part of, particularly when you guys played against the chargers and uh, the Stan Humphreys team that started one and five and became 11 and five. And then you guys lost in the playoffs and that it, it must've stung during that time. But if there's anything that I'm sure you must've learned out of that is that you had been used to painful losses that you utilized as adversity to make it big the next time around that you got that chance to be in the big game. Yeah, I mean, that team that lost to the, the, to the San Diego Chargers in the uh, AFC Championship game was probably the best team they ever played on, you know, outside the 1999 Jaguars when we lost to the Titans in the AFC Championship day. Because that team was – we had the number one defense in the NFL and we had the number one rushing attack in the NFL. I mean, we pound and ground you, all right? We went after you. Uh, uh, we we had Barry Foster back there. We had Bam Morris. We had a stellar offensive line. We had a tight end, Eric Green. Uh, we had a stickler of a defense. We had Greg Lloyd, Kevin Green, LeBron Kirkland, Chad Brown, Le uh, Rod Woodson, Carnell Lake. Uh, that team was locked and loaded. I mean, so there was there was absolutely no reason for us to have lost that game against the Chargers. Uh, we kept them in the game. Uh, we should have we should have uh, annihilated them early on and gave them no no chance to breathe, but we did. And we ended up losing the game because, uh, you know, Tim, Tim McCoyer gave up an ADR bomb, uh, you know, with like three minutes left to go in the game. And then we tried to come back and, 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 and win the game, and we came up short. But uh, the very next year, uh, we had that opportunity, and we kind of redeemed ourselves. Now, we didn't win the Super Bowl, but we knew we had a good enough team uh, that we could actually go to the Super Bowl. We ended up beating the Colts in the AFC Championship game that year, and then we lost to the Cowboys 27-17 to because, uh, you know, we had two costly turnovers thrown by Neil O'Donnell that actually led to our demise. And that game, too, people talk about, you know, all-time gutsy calls, and and especially with 
correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it was the end of that AFC championship game. Was it Jim Harbaugh who was on the Colts and they threw the Hail Mary into the end zone and they yes. almost caught it and it fell out of his hands. What, what would have went through your mind on the sideline watching that play right there? Because that is one of the craziest <clears throat> plays in Colts history that didn't happen. Well, the, the thing I remember the most about that pass is that that, that ball stayed in the air for like 20 seconds because, because all I was doing is all I was doing is uh, reminiscing on how painful it was the year before that we lost uh, because of a Hail Mary pass that was thrown. And then I said to myself, I know damn well we're not going. This is not going to happen two years in a row. So when that ball went through that receiver's chest and hit the ground, I was elated because I, I knew that uh, we were going to the Super Bowl, uh, and it was it was it was just sheer joy and satisfaction knowing that we had accomplished our goal. Now, when you went to the Super Bowl, you played against the Dallas Cowboys, and their head coach was the man who claimed that he wanted to draft you, and that started the whole draft ordeal. So. What was going through your mind before that game and how did you handle the pain of the loss knowing that maybe had fate changed, you would have been a Dallas Cowboy, you could have been on the other side of that Super Bowl victory? Well, actually, it wasn't Jimmy Johnson. It was actually Barry Switzer, uh, who was the head coach at that particular time uh, with the Cowboys when we lost to him in the Super Bowl. Uh, But I had a lot of former teammates on the other side of the ball, Uh, you know, guys that I played with the University of Miami. And it was very frustrating. and, you know, I, you know, I'm not a good loser. I don't know whoever is a good loser, but my former teammates were telling me, you know, you'll be back next year, you're this, this, and that. While the Cowboys confetti is raining on me, you know, they're trying to console me. And I'm not really trying to hear that because I, I knew that we had a team good enough to win the Super Bowl. And I remember going into the locker room, the media is all around my locker and asking me questions about the game and this, this, and that. And I only said a couple of words. I said, the hell with the Cowboys. And that was it. That was in my interview. I mean, that's how frustrating it was. That game is the probably the most, not probably, is the most devastating loss that I have, have ever sustained as a, in my career of playing football because you, anytime you get that close to winning a championship, because I had never lost a championship before. You got to remember, I went to the University of Miami and I played in three national championships and we won them all. So I just thought that it was, it was just sheer destiny that I'd be in the Super Bowl and, I, and win it. And then for me not to have won that Super Bowl, was probably as frustrating a, a, a thing that I had to deal with. And for for the listener out there who is who's hearing this episode, it's so hard to even begin to quantify how difficult it is to play in a Super Bowl. I know that people, a quarterback, uh, you know, quarter, uh, couch quarterbacks and couch GMs and the fans at home, they love to to rag on people that lose or make mistakes at such a, a big stage or Patrick Mahomes not being able to lead the Chiefs. And, oh, yeah, I knew it. He's not as good as we thought or whoever it may be. But when you really think about how hard it is and how many people are trying to be on an NFL team, how many NFL teams are trying to win the Super Bowl and everything that goes into that competition, it's such an insanely rare feat to achieve in life and to come up short in that game, especially the way that that game ended too, relatively close, not that far apart in terms of the the margin of victory, but the two costly turnovers, the interceptions that people always look back on and remember. And even, I think it was one of the cornerbacks who had picked off one of his passes, got a huge bloated contract after mm-hmm. that, after that season, but never lived up to it because the, the fame of making a play like that in the Super Bowl is just, is so otherworldly. 
Well, see, what I think is that I don't think the fans you know, can totally appreciate what actually goes into a football season. I mean, because you, you're, you're talking about once the once the season ends in February, you're, you're, you're essentially you're taking two weeks off and then you're back on the grind. You're back training. You're back lifting. You're back running. Then you got mini camps. You got OTAs. You got training camps. You got preseason. Then you've got the season. And then the seasons are grinding itself. You know, you're, you're practicing, you know, you're practicing Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, walkthroughs on Saturday, and then you've got to perform at a high level on Sundays. And we're talking about 16 weeks. And if you're lucky enough, you don't get hurt, you know, you keep your you, you keep your team pretty healthy, and then you get the opportunity to play in the playoffs. And now when you go in the playoffs, you got to win on the road, or you got to win at home. And then you're going up against the level of competition as equal to you or even better than you. And then if you're lucky enough to do that, you get to the AFC championship game. Then you got to win the AFC championship game, whether you're at home or you're on the road. And then you go to the Super Bowl. And then the pressure of winning that Super Bowl is is, is astounding. That's why I don't I don't get the narrative behind the Buffalo Bills. Do you know how the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl four years in a row? But they don't get credit for going to the Super Bowl four years in a row. All of the, the narrative about the Bills is that, oh, they lost four Super Bowls. But do you know how hard it is to get to one Super Bowl, let alone four Super Bowls in a row? I mean, I, I, I have nothing but mad love for that organization, Marv Levy, and the players on that staff because it's hard to go to one Super Bowl, let alone four Super Bowls in a row. And, you know, I was young when, when I lost the Super Bowl, and there's something in my spirit is like, you know what? You're young, you'll get back to it. But it never happened. So you've got to savor those moments when you get to the Super Bowl. Now, it'll be granted that if you win it, you know, it's outstanding if you win it. But just the journey, the grind, the, the, the blood, the sweat and tears that you put in to just get to a Super Bowl is, is something that I, I don't think the fans can truly appreciate. And when you lose it, um, it's, it's devastating to you as a player. And especially the way that you tied in your history at the University of Miami, with having won three national championships with the Hurricanes, it almost seemed like a foregone conclusion that that type of success would be able to be maybe as easily repeated, or maybe it's just a little bit harder because, well, we came from an amazing organization and we were world-class and all these sorts of things, but it's hard. When you guys lost the Catholics versus Convicts game, now football fans will, will see it forever enshrined in NCAA football history because of the rivalry and the context of the t-shirts and the way the game went and the missed two point conversion and all these sorts of things. But, mm. but that was just for a chance to get to the national championship. That wasn't the national championship. And you guys use that as fuel to motivate yourselves for the next year to be able to go on that incredible run. Now in the NFL, you played for two organizations that were outstanding during the time that you played for them, the Steelers and the Jaguars. And even with the Jaguars, it was such a, a new thing at the time because them and the Panthers were inaugural teams in 1995. It was their first ever year in existence. Mm -hmm. And it was a double expansion that hadn't happened in the NFL for a long time. So what were your thoughts when you had the opportunity to go to Jacksonville on what that part of your football journey might bring you? Well, uh, the, well, actually, I, I signed with the Jaguars in 1996. It was actually going into their second year of existence. And... Um, I, you know, I could have been comfortable. I could have signed with the Steelers and we could have probably made a couple of runs at the Super Bowl. But, I, you know, I was always one looking for a challenge. And, you know, I, the narrative with the Steelers at that particular time is that uh, they made me. They felt they, in our negotiations doing free agency, uh, they, they had uh, spoken to my agent and told me that I was a product of their system. 
uh, that if I had went anywhere else, I wasn't going to have the same success. Uh, the money, the type of money that I was asking for, I didn't deserve it. You know, so I took it upon myself to prove them wrong and prove myself right that I could go anywhere and have success. And that's the reason why I left the Steelers. I left the Steelers. I mean, you don't leave a storied program, a story organization like the Steelers and go to the Jacksonville Jaguars. But, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't want to be comfortable. I, you know, I didn't want to be in the box. You know, I wanted to prove to myself that I could go anywhere and have success. And that's one of the main reasons I left Pittsburgh is because I wanted to go to this new team and see if I could have success there. And early on, it was a little rocky. I was a little concerned. I was a little distraught because we had lost games that uh, we should have won. And we started the season off at four and seven. Uh, But, you know, we ran five straight after that. And next thing you know, we're in the playoffs. And we're in the playoffs and we're on the road and we're playing the Buffalo Bills. And we beat the Bills, who were 10-0 in the, in the postseason at home. And then we went on the road against the mighty Denver Broncos, who were 13-3, and the number one seed in the, uh, in the AFC. And we beat the Denver Broncos on the road. And next thing you know, I mean, we're in the AFC Championship game, one game away from the Super Bowl. So that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be a part of, you know, shaping and molding the Jacksonville Jaguars into a household name. And I think for the most part, the years that I was there, I helped put Jacksonville on the map. No doubt. And especially during one of the most magical runs in Jaguars playoff history against the Denver Broncos, the very, very famous game for Jacksonville and infamous for Denver. And, and for, for the listener out there that might not know the full context behind this story, you mentioned the Jaguars starting four and seven, and it wasn't, if not for a botched 31-yard field goal by Morton Anderson in week 17, the Jaguars wouldn't have even made the playoffs. They were eight and seven and needed to beat the Falcons. And all Morton Anderson had to do was knock in a chippy from 31. And it looked like he slipped as he was planted to kick the ball. It sails wide right. And next thing you know, you hear Brian Sexton's call. It's no good. It's no good. And the Jaguars are going to the playoffs. And the win in Buffalo and the game in Denver. I want to I want to dive into that a little bit more from watching NFL Network and the specials they did on biggest upsets, that was hailed as one of the biggest upsets. And John Elway even says to this day, that's probably the most devastating loss he experienced in his career, even though he lost five Super Bowls. or, or I th- He had been to five Super Bowls. And I think he had lost three of them or something like that. But you guys were called the Jaguars before that game, and you guys were a very new team. But how did you feel going into Denver, playing a lot high, knowing you guys were playing against Shannon Sharp and John Elway and all these amazing players. What what was Leon Cersei thinking at that time? Well, you know, I, you know, for me personally, you know, because I had played for the Steelers, I had played in big games before, you know, so I was seasoned. And you know, what I was telling them, and, and we had a pretty, you know, outside of Buscelli, uh, you know, uh, Waddell, uh, Dave Waddell, you know, we had a seasoned group up front. And, you know, what we just said, you know what, we're just going to play our game. We're not going to get rattled. If we get down early, you know, we're just going to chip away. We're going to run the ball. We're going to play action. We're going to take our shots. We're going to protect. You know, we're going to control the line of scrimmage. And we just took it upon ourselves that we wanted the game to be in our hands. You know, we had Natron Means back there. We had Mark Burnell, Jimmy Smith, Keenan McCardell. We just told them to make plays. Up front, we're going to take care of business. Mark is not going to be rattled. He's not going to be pressured. We're going to run the ball effectively. And let's see what happens. You know, we were 14-point dogs going into the game. You know, everybody had already picked the, you know, the, the Broncos to, to play in the Super Bowl. 
And we just said to ourselves, you know what? This is a heavyweight fight. And in the heavyweight fight, you don't win in the first round. You know, you don't win the second round. You, you, as, you, as long as you stay in the fight, uh, we'll find out towards the end, you know, who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna come out the winner. And that's what we did. We just took it round by round. We just took it quarter by quarter. And it sounds a little cliche, but that's just the way we thought. We just figured this. If we stay in the game, because they jumped out on us early. They, they jumped out on us early. They were up. I think they were up on us like 12 to nothing at the beginning of the game. And then at halftime, we was up 13 to 12. So all the pressure was on them after that. When we went into halftime, that's what we were saying. We were not even supposed to be in this game. All the pressure's on them. They're the number one seed. They're supposed to blow us out. We're going to stay in the game. We're going to keep the pressure on them by controlling the clock, running the ball, protecting the passer, taking our shots at the end. And you know what? They're going to rattle at the end. They're going to they're going to crack under pressure at the end because we got nothing to lose. We're playing with house money, huh? We're playing with house money. No one expects us to win, so we might as well go in there and see what we can do. As a Jaguars fan, watching highlights back of that game just gives me chills knowing what the stakes were for Denver to get to the Super Bowl and the famous clip of Shannon Sharp picking up the phone and call the president, we need a National Guard because, you know, they're doing outstanding and and that soundbite in particular always always stands out but but for the fans who have seen that game they remember mark brunel's throw to jimmy smith in the end zone his run for i think it was 20 plus yards something like that it was crazy what were what was going through your mind during that game when you saw some of those big chunk plays like how did you handle you know your assignment while also trying not to get too excited about what was going on, but knowing that you guys were pulling off one of the biggest upsets in NFL history. Well, you know, it really didn't dawn upon us how big a victory it was until after the game, you know, everybody was just calm and collective. I, I just remember being on the sideline with the offensive line and the offensive lines. Listen, let's keep doing what we're doing. We were controlling the line of scrimmage. Uh, we were pushing them back. You know, Natron was getting the yards. He was he was finishing every play. We were converting on first downs. Mark was making the necessary throws to convert on third down situations. Uh, we didn't have a lot of penalties because penalties and turnovers in a game like that could be magnified if it's a close game. And we knew it was going to be a close game. So we knew we had to play a flawless game if we were going to beat the Broncos. Because the Broncos, you know, if you don't remember that season, the Broncos were lighting everybody up, running the ball, passing the ball. So we just said, ourselves, just, just stay in the game. And give us to the fourth quarter, and we see if we can win it. And I remember uh, when the Broncos had made the score 23 to 20, and uh, we had the ball with like a little over and maybe uh, eight minutes to go. The most, the most refreshing thing that happened in that huddle is that when we got the ball, Mark Brunell came in the huddle was like, y'all having fun yet? So that, that just kind of mellowed everybody out. He was like, you having fun yet? He said, this is fun. He said, look at this. We have three points or eight minutes to go in the game. We're in this game. We're going to win this freaking game. When he said that, and it, it, I, I get chills thinking about it right now. When he said that, we knew we knew we were going to win the game because he was confident. It's not like your quarterback coming to the huddle and say, hey, look, y'all having fun yet? Put a smile on your face. We're going to win this game. And that's what he said. And what, that's what we did. Because a field goal was not going to, was not going to submit the victory because, you know, the, the next drive, Elway drove right down to score the touchdown. So we knew we had to score a touchdown to put this game away. And that's what we did. And I, 
And I, I tell people to this day, the greatest catch in Jaguar history is Mark Brunel to Jimmy Smith in the back of the end zone against the Denver Broncos. That's the greatest catch in Jacksonville Jaguar history. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And the call, the setting, the throw, the catch, double coverage, everything. Jimmy Smith laid everything on the line that he had and made one of the great acrobatic catches in Jaguars history. And especially to cap off an unbelievable Cinderella story to get you guys into the playoffs, let alone win in Buffalo, let alone win in Denver. And after all that had happened, I think that was probably one of the biggest games in the team's history, especially during their second season ever to really let the NFL know, Hey, Jacksonville's here to compete and they're not just going to roll over. No, what, what, what that game did is, um, it, it, it instilled a lot of confidence us as players because, you know, we could have easily been one hit wonders. You know, we could have had the magical 1996 season and just went away in obscurity. But no, the next year we went, what, 12, 11 and five. The year after that, we go 12 and four. The year after that, we go 14 and two. I mean, so just the, the, the fact that we elevated our play year in and year out is attributed not only to Tom Coughlin and his coaching staff, but to the dedication of the players because the players didn't want this to be uh, some fly-by-night uh, season. They wanted to be able to establish Jacksonville, the Jacksonville Jaguars, as one of the elite teams in the NFL. And for that period of time, from 96 to 2000, uh, we were considered one of the elite teams in the NFL. And especially with the offensive line that you played on, one of the greatest Jaguar linemen ever, Tony Baselli played opposite side to you at left tackle and had mm -hmm. one of the most tremendous careers that a Jaguar player could have, especially during such a crucial time. Talk a bit about your relationship with him and, and how his growth went in the vision of your eyes as you were already a seasoned veteran and he was just entering the league. What, what was it like playing opposite side to Tony? Well, Tony and I were competitors. Uh, we, we competed against each other, to be quite honest with you, which, which made us better. Uh, uh, he knew that his game had to be on point because my game was going to be on point. I knew my game had to be on point because I knew his game was going to be on point, which made us stellar bookend tackles because we were such competitors in everything we did. Uh, in practice, when we conditioned, when we were in the weight room, how we studied, how we got after people. And that what that did is that that uh, that went across the whole offensive line because we held ourselves to such a high standard that the guys that played next to us, we held them to that same standard. And that's the reason why we had one of the more successful offensive lines in the NFL is because we held everybody accountable. And, you know, you couldn't have any onion skin. You know, if we called you out, you know, it was for the betterment of the team. And rightfully so. If you called us out, you know, we, we understood it. But uh, we were fierce competitors while we were on the team. Uh, we were good friends while we were on the team. Um, but I think that we wanted to outshine each other when we played. You know, no matter whether he was going up against uh, Jason Taylor or, or I was going up against Michael Strahan where he was going up against Bruce Smith and I was going up against Derek Thomas. Uh, he was going up against Michael McCrary. I was going up against Peter Boer, where we wanted to, we wanted to play our best football, especially when the level of competition uh, presented itself. 
Who's the toughest defensive lineman that you ever had to handle during your time with the Jaguars? Um, with the Jaguars, the toughest defensive tackle I ever go, had to go up against was probably uh, Michael Strahan. Michael Strahan was pretty tough. Um, you know, big, fast, physical, uh, long, uses his hands well. Uh, he was he was a fierce competitor. Uh, he was probably the toughest guy. Another guy named Rob Burnett. Uh, he was a defensive end for the Ravens that I had to go up against. He was pretty tough as well. But those two guys are probably the toughest competitors that I had to go up against when I was a Jaguar. And Michael Strahan, again, another tremendous player. And, and Burnett as well was was outstanding for the Ravens during a time when it seemed that defense reigned supreme during the late 90s with the way that the Ravens won the Super Bowl. And then eventually, when the Giants won the Super Bowl, when Strahan was on the team in 07, they won mm -hmm. their defense against what was supposed to be the greatest NFL team ever. So during that 99 season, obviously for Jaguars fans, they would know that it, it ended in bitter disappointment with the third loss to the same team within the same year and the only team in NFL history to only lose to one team besides, and, or, and not to make it to the Super Bowl, going 14-2 and two and losing to the Titans. But regardless of, of the way that it ended, what it also did to keep up with that consistency of the Jaguars' success and everything you guys were able to achieve during that season, it was just a season like no other for the city of Jacksonville. And that team has gone down in history as one of the greatest offenses, greatest defenses, most electrifying play. Talk about some of your favorite memories that you had from playing with the Jaguars in 1999. Um, it, you know, uh, we, we had, we had, we had all kinds of talent you know, on both sides of the ball. I mean, we had uh, literally, you know, eight pro bowlers on the team, you know, uh, me, Basali, Brunel, Jimmy Smith, you know, Fred, Keenan, Tony Brackens, Kevin Hardy, Carnell Lake. Um, probably the, in my whole career, probably the most talented football team I've ever been on. Uh, I don't like to reminisce as much about the 99 season, because, although the 15 wins is still, a, a you know, a Jacksonville Jaguar, you know, record for the most wins in the season. Um, it's still frustrating to me. Uh, with a team with as talented as we were uh, to have not uh, participated and possibly could have won a Super Bowl. So um, as much as I, I loved being on the 99 team, um, it's still very uh, you know frustrating for me to think about what we could have been if we had, you know, just beaten the Titans uh, in that championship game. And even as just a Jaguars fan, it, it, it's always frustrating to look back on some of those unfortunate moments through history, but needless to say, I think one of the highlights of that entire season had to have been sending Dan Marino into retirement and winning against the Miami Dolphins 62 to seven at Jacksonville Municipal Stadium in one of the, in the biggest blowout in NFL playoff history. And one of the, the biggest blowouts just ever first in Jacksonville history. And then one of the biggest blowouts that the NFL has ever seen what was it like playing in that game, knowing that Dan Marino was was going to retire after the season and and everybody was talking about him having that one last shot and maybe winning the Super Bowl, and then just the polar opposite happening. And even like Tony Bracken's touchdown, like he, he didn't think he was down or he thought he was already down and then stumbling into the end zone. How fun was it to play in that game? 
you know, it, it, it was fun. It, it was it was a type of game where everything just seemed to be going in our in our way. I mean, um, the Fred Taylor run, the screen pass to Fred Taylor, uh, the Tony Brackens, uh, the you know touchdown, um, uh, you know Jimmy Smith. I mean, everything just seemed to be falling in our way. And I, I just remember being on the sidelines. I think we were up forty-five to nothing or something like that. And I said to myself, you know what? We, I said, we've scored enough points. I said, we, we're probably going to need some of these points next week. I just remember being on the sideline saying that. Uh, but it, it was it, it was a fun game um, because um, it was actually the first time we had, you know, the road to the Super Bowl had to come through Jacksonville. You know, we were the number one seed. You know, uh, Tom Coughlin had talked about that throughout my stint in Jacksonville's that – you know, if we ever get an opportunity where the road to the Super Bowl has to come to Jacksonville, you know, we want to take full advantage of it. And we did for the most part in that first game. Um, it was just a fun game. It was it was it was a, it was a very fun game to be in. You know, a lot of laughing and joking and giggling going on after the game because uh, uh, the, the points just seemed to be rolling in so easily. Uh, I wish we could have used at least 30 of those points for the next week against the Titans. Uh, so uh, it, it was cool uh, winning a game like that. But, uh, you know, uh, just unfortunate that the next week that we had to play the Titans that we ended up losing. It's a tough game, but to send out Dan Marino in style is something that will never be able to be taken away from you. And that's, it's, it's that's true. true. It's truly a monumental game in Jaguars history. And with, with the way that things are looking to turn around this year. Urban Meyer now making his way back to, or to the NFL, back to football with Jacksonville and the first pick in the draft this year, next month. And the Jaguars potentially looking to take Trevor Lawrence from Clemson University. What are your thoughts on the potential of the Jaguars to create a new era with Urban Meyer as the head coach and to, to watch the Jaguars from afar, knowing that they played such an important part of your career in the NFL? Well, you know, I, I like the hire. You know, I like the fact that, you know, Urban Meyer is, is a proven winner. You know, every, at every collegiate level, he's had success. You know, from Bowling Green to Utah to Florida to Ohio State, he's been a winner. Uh, and, you know, in Jacksonville, unfortunately, over the last two decades, have had a culture of losing. You know, we've only had three winning seasons in the last 20 years. And I think that's the big, first thing, the foremost, that he's got to do. He's got to change the culture. The thinking, the mindset of these players is that winning, losing will not be tolerated. And, and I like that about him. And I like the fact that he put together, you know, a coaching staff that has NFL experience. I like some of the moves that he's making in free agency. Um, uh, so we're going to see. We're going to see, you know, if, if he's going to be able to answer the bell. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is a once-in-a-generational quarterback. Uh, I, I believe he's going to be an outstanding quarterback uh, in my assessment. You know, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I already think he's the second best quarterback in Jaguars history behind Mark Brunel. He hasn't even taken a snap. Uh, so um, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of positive energy going on here in Jacksonville right now that we haven't had in such a long time. And do I do I expect a quick turnabout? No, you know, but but I just want to see this team compete to the highest level. And if you compete to the highest level and you get, you, you exert yourself and you don't tolerate losing. And if he, he puts that in the mindset of the players, you know, it's a couple of games that you, you may not be expected to win that you could win, you know? So I, I just, I, I just, I, 
I love being a Jaguar. I love everything about it. And um, it's hard for me to tolerate losing um, because, you know, I, 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 I helped. You know, it's almost like this. It's almost like when you build a house and someone's renting it and they trash it. You know, that's that's how I feel for, you know, I, I you know, I was here from the upstart, you know, maybe not the first year, but I was here to help build the foundation of this organization. And I just didn't like the direction that it was going. And, you know, hopefully, you know, you know, he can put some smiles on Jaguar faces again, because I know this fan base is loyal and faithful to his Jaguars and they deserve a winner. You're 100 percent right. And it's going to be something that. All the Jaguars and the rest of the NFL will have to hold their breath to wait and see come April and come the 2021 NFL season, how things start to turn around and to see the Jaguars be competitive again. Because quite honestly, if you look at the way their history has gone, that's a perfect analogy that you used is that you built a house nice and clean and it gets rented out and it's trashed. And and the city of Jacksonville has to be ever so loyal for them to hang around in the NFL because they're considered a small market team and because of the many years of losing they've had as compared to the winning years when you were there during your time in the late nineties, it's, it's kind of been the opposite of what fans would have hoped, but there's hope on the horizon now for Jacksonville. And I really, really want it to turn around for them so that the fans myself included can really see them shine once again, like they did during their early glory days. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Leon, we're getting towards the end of our time here in today's recording. And so I wanted to ask you a few questions to wrap up and have some fun before we part for today's episode. Sounds good. So the first question I have for you is who is the funniest teammate you ever played with in college? And who's the funniest teammate you played with in the NFL? The funniest teammate I ever played with in college. Um, Horace Copeland. Horace Copeland uh, actually went to my high school at Evans. I was a senior. He was a sophomore. I was his host as well when he came to the University of Miami. Uh, Horace Copeland is probably definitely one of them. Warren Sapp, you got to throw Warren in there too. You know, Warren has some cruel, cruel humor, but it's still funny. But uh, those two guys, uh, in the NFL, the funniest guy I've been around in the NFL was probably um, Aaron Beasley. Uh, Aaron Beasley was a character. Uh, we used to kill him. We used to call him Killer Bees, uh, but he was a real jokester and prankster. But uh, Aaron Beasley is probably one of the funniest guys I ever dealt with in the NFL. Who is the best coach that you ever had in your entire football career? Uh, best coach I ever had in my entire football career is um, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, and I say Jimmy Johnson because uh, I tell people this too every day. Um, University of Miami taught me how to be a champion. And, you know, Jimmy Johnson recruited me out of, uh, you know, my high school. And I had two years under Jimmy Johnson. And he was a stickler on perfection and accountability and toughness and mental toughness and, and conditioning and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that, that resonated with me. Uh, throughout my career at Miami and carried over until I went to the NFL. So uh, Jimmy Johnson is definitely the best coach I've ever had in my career. I remember a part of the book you were talking about when he was leaving to go to the Cowboys, he had looked at you and said, Leon, if you don't make the NFL and if you don't become the best 
Lyman, by the time you graduate, you, you've cheated your family, you've cheated your, yeah. your friends, your teammates, you cheated yourself. And, and I can only imagine the fire that that lit underneath you to really go out and, and to manifest that. Yeah. I mean, uh, Jimmy Johnson saw something in me that, uh, I no one else did. You got to remember when he said that to me, I hadn't played a down yet in the university of Miami. You know, I was a red shirt freshman and he was going to the NFL and he basically pulled me in the room and told me if I don't leave university of Miami as the best offensive lineman in the history of the school, he said, I've cheated the university. I've cheated my family. I've cheated myself and I cheated my teammates. And that's a lot of pressure for a 19 year old kid who hadn't even played a down, but he believed in me. He saw something in me that I probably didn't even see in myself. And he motivated me to, to, to um, manifest what he saw in me. So um, I like to say that, you know, my career at Miami, I'm considered, you know, one of the, you know, one or two greatest offensive linemen that ever played the history of the school. Which is no small feat in and of itself. And, mm-hmm. to, pl- and to be touted that highly at that position, arguably tied for, with quarterback for the most important position of football, Mm-hmm. At one of the best schools in NCAA history is truly just such a remarkable achievement. Yes, yes. I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I made this decision to go to the University of Miami. The next question I have to ask you is, if you were to give younger Leon advice before entering the NFL, mm-hmm. what to do, how to expect to, to roll with the punches that you may deal with during your career, what would it be and why? You know, if I was to talk to young Leon Cersei, I would tell Leon, young Leon the Cersei to um, uh, treat himself like a corporation. Uh, fire, hire and fire people accordingly, you know, um, and, and, and learn how to say no. You know, um, as you read through the book, you know, I had a very giving heart. You know, now I, I did a lot of things I wasn't supposed to do. I spurs, I spent money, I hung out, I did those kind of things. But I had a very giving soul. Uh, and I, because I was had a very giving soul because I, 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 I thought that, you know, where I was, that I owed uh, other people uh, the same accolades that I had, had achieved while I was playing. And I didn't because blessings aren't for everybody, you know. So that's what I would tell them, you know, you know, put away your money, save your money, learn how to say no and uh, learn to hire and fire people accordingly. I really like that because it's such a perfect analogy as to how life can go in the NFL and people always look and see, Oh, they make tons of money and, and ooh la la and they're famous and they're million dollar commodities. But you look at the percentage of people that become bankrupt or broke after playing in their career, you'd think, how would someone go through all that money? But you'd be surprised. And yes, not, um, it's not something to take for granted. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. When 78% was 78% of athletes that leave the NFL, Leave the uh, the NFL uh, broke or bankrupt. That's 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 not a problem. That's a dilemma. Hundred percent. And and I wanted to ask you as well about Real Men Block and and your your involvement with that and 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 how you how you're looking to inspire change in the next generation. So can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, Real Men Block is is a sports apparel line for offensive linemen. Uh, you know, I was inspired by uh, creating a brand for offensive linemen, you know, maybe about five years ago. Uh, I used to train um, uh, offensive linemen. Agents used to call me up and have me train offensive linemen um, to get them ready for the combine or their pro day. And I just got inspired uh, because the offensive linemen 
uh, unlike wide receivers, DBs, and running backs, you know, they didn't have the attire, you know, the proper attire to wear, you know, that, that suited them, you know, there's Under Armour and those old things, but I wanted to create a brand that was specific to offensive linemen. And so that's why I came up with the young concept. It's going to be a sports apparel line. It's also going, it's going to include uh, uh, camps. You know, it's going to be include uh, camps to help offensive linemen with the technique fundamentals and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm kind of rebooting it. You know, it's something that I opened up about three years ago. And then it kind of, you know, it, it kind of went away. But then I'm, I'm, I'm going to reboot it this summer. Uh, so I'm going to start uh, up Real Men Block again come uh, summer 2021. We'll definitely want to make sure to look out for that for the viewer, for the listener out there, because it's so critical to make sure that linemen are always looked at in high regard because people always look at quarterbacks as the heroes and the glory Cowboys. But there's an old saying that goes, you know, offensive linemen are like the roars in a Viking ship. They don't get much credit for what they do, but if they don't do their job, well, the ship ain't going nowhere. There you go. Absolutely. So the final question I want to ask you today, Leon, is what is the sweetest victory you ever experienced during your entire football career? The one that you love the most. Mm, the sweetest victory I ever had in my career was at probably, yeah, 1991, when we uh, wide right won. When we, uh, number one Florida State versus number two Miami, the game of the century wide right one and, and I said in the book if you remember I was on the sideline and I said he was going to miss it to the right a lot of people don't believe me when I said that but I remember specifically being on the sideline all the guys holding hands and everything with the guys about to kick the field goal and I said man he's going to miss it to the right and lo and behold he missed it wide right and that game it's there's so many stories that come out of that game and it's just absolutely crazy to think about Calling that right then and there, that moment, it reminds me of in the NBA, in the, <laughs> and I think it was in the late 90s, early 2000s, of Baron Davis when he was on the Charlotte Hornets. He was saying to his defender with like nine-tenths of a second left, he said, you know, I'm going to sink this full court shot right here. And people were like, oh, no, like he didn't say that he called it. And, he was, and then in the paper, he said, go ask my defender. Go ask him. And he <laughs> called it from full court. Bang, swish. So that's what it makes me think of. And it's crazy to think that – you're able to call that in that moment and and how impactful it was in terms of the rivalry that existed within Florida between the Hurricanes and the Seminoles and what that meant for the Hurricanes just in general. Oh, yeah. It was a sweet victory. Gave me my third championship ring. And the third time's the charm, like they say. And with Absolutely. that, Leon, I want to thank you so much for being on today's episode. It was truly fantastic to talk to you about your experiences playing in the NFL playing for the Hurricanes, talking about your book. So I want you, the listener out there, to go and check out Fourth Down and Damn. You need to pick up a copy today. It's absolutely an amazing read for all football fans out there and sports fans in general. You'll definitely want to check that out. Leon, thank you for being on today's episode so much. I really had a great time. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode with all pro lineman, Leon Searcy. First and goal from the one. This is it. Stiegel. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at Huddle Up 
underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time. Eating healthy is a common goal that people strive for, but it can be tough when life gets very busy. Being able to eat healthy on the go is becoming more and more important. That's why I'm here today to tell you about G2G Protein Bars, the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It is all natural and made with fresh ingredients, like homemade, but better. G2G Bars contain 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, you'll be sure to enjoy many of the great tastes that G2G bars have to offer. They are fresh, healthy, and delicious. Get yours today at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer. G2G bars. You will taste the difference.